BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Representative Adam Schiff. He led the prosecution for Donald Trump's first impeachment trial. In the process, he became one of Trump's favorite punching bags, a baffling experience he documents in his new memoir, Midnight in Washington. Now Schiff is a member of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol, and the subpoenas are flying fast and furious. So I wanted to talk to Schiff about how the investigation is going and what impact he hopes to have this time around. I wanted to understand how he and the committee are factoring in the revelations from Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen as they contemplate social media's role in the January 6th attack. So here we go with Adam Schiff, or as Trump liked to call him, Shifty Schiff. Thank you. Great to be with you. I haven't heard that nickname in a while. Do you miss it? Well, I don't have a chance to miss it because at these rallies, uh, he's out calling me Watermelon Head. That's his new name for me. Oh, really? He, 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 I was Pencil Neck. and <laughs> uh, potentially. I, I oh, tell pencil people neck. that going from Pencil Neck to Watermelon Head, it's a, it's a very difficult balancing act. How does he come up with that one? Well, he's like a lot of fifth graders. Yeah, right. Anyway, I'm going to start off with Facebook because these hearings just took place. Do you think they're revelations? Your book looks at social media algorithms in the lead up to the 2016 elections and how Russia gamed the system. In the pandemic, we've seen vaccine disinformation. President Biden criticized them, then backed off. You and I have talked about this a lot, and I have certainly talked about everything that was in this testimony. So tell me what you think is important here. Well, there's so much that's important, but but you're right. In many ways, it's not a revelation. Uh, what is new is hearing it from the inside and seeing it in such graphic detail and documented. Um, I remember you and I talked about this at the time back in 2017, The Intelligence Committee had a hearing with the tech executives. We were focused on Russian intervention. But I remember asking uh, the general counsel of Facebook, um, what about the algorithm's impact on our society? Are they balkanizing us? Are they turning people against each other? And his answer was, well, the jury is still out. Um, I don't know if the jury was out uh, back in 2017, but the jury's come back in. Right. And you know, among the many allegations of the whistleblower that are disturbing uh, is in the intel area that Facebook is purposely not hiring the staff that they need, not designing the detection that they need to uh, look at all of the foreign interference that's going on. They just don't want to see it, in other words. They don't want to see it um, They because they'd have to do something about it. And, of course, some of the other allegations of they're changing back to the pre-election mm-hmm. news feed. Um, right immediately after election, they did this. They had this civic integrity team, yes. which did a good job at taking the temperature down before the election. But after the election is when the temperature really went up. Well, and if we had any assumption before the election that the worst would be before the election, uh, mm-hmm. we learned thereafter that, no, the worst was yet to come. Mm-hmm. And on the January 6th Select Committee, we're obviously looking at the role of Facebook and social media mm-hmm. in helping those who attacked the Capitol that day organize, in helping to proliferate the big lie, which 
uh, led up to that violent insurrection. Right. And does that mean your book opens with January 6th, among other things that whistleblower Francis Haugen said was that Facebook was partly responsible for the Capitol attack, that they prematurely turned off the safeguards against misinformation. What impact do you think that had? Because they had been doing the right thing and then decided to get back to business as usual. I think it has a, a very big impact. Uh, there's, a, as you know, a funneling effect in social media where if you're a uh, Proud Boys or Three Percenters or other white nationalist group or violent mm-hmm. group, uh, you send out feelers very broadly. And those who respond, uh, you send out more feelers to pull them into a more radical direction. And the process continues until you have a hardcore willing to do almost anything, willing to attack a capital and bludgeon police and threaten to kill the vice president and legislators. Um, at the same time, we can't ignore the effect of other media, right. the OANs and the Fox Newses and the Newsmaxes that are uh, you know, unapologetically pushing out the big lie mm-hmm. and other big lies. Um, there's no civic integrity there. Well, they can be sued, though. Look at Dominion Systems is suing every one of them, right? They can be sued, but You know, how much impact has litigation had so far? Alex Jones just lost a lawsuit. Well, it's an important remedy. My only point being is Facebook can't be sued. And I think we need to look at that Section 230 immunity, which was something Congress provided when it was a nascent industry and we did want to stifle innovation. Well, they're not nascent anymore. They're the behemoths. So what would you say to their argument um, that they're like phone companies? People use phones to organize. Well, How different do you think that is? I think it's completely different from a phone company, although like the phone company, uh, they're in need of regulation. Mm -hmm. But different in the sense that they moderate and curate or don't moderate the content. And because that content is visible to them, uh, because they have policies which they are empowered to utilize, they can protect their customers and the public. A private company can decide uh, what kind of incendiary, hateful, divisive rhetoric it will tolerate or not tolerate. I think that Section 230 has given the companies an incentive not to moderate. Mm-hmm. It was actually designed, as you know, to— So they could moderate. So they could moderate and not be sued for moderating. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's had, I think, the opposite impact over time. But I, I mentioned Fox and OAN and Newsmax mm-hmm. just because— that 230 is not going to be the complete answer. And I do think in terms of immunity and 230, we need to look not just at how they moderate content, but also the fundamental problem of algorithms enhancing engagement and the model that essentially stokes the fire. Mm-hmm. You know what I always say, engagement equals enragement. Well, that is very true. Another thing they've been doing, Nick Clegg, the vice president of global affairs, um, called the accusations misleading. He said that Facebook and social media in general are not the primary cause of polarization, though I never, no one ever accused them of that. They also is sort of saying basically humans were bad before we got here. Yeah. Well, um, those arguments only go so far, and for me, they don't go that far. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as I mentioned, I, I think there's truth to the argument, why are you so focused on us and not looking at Fox? Yeah, and, yeah that's their new um, thing. They're completely unapologetic. Um, but y- you don't respond to actors who are not responsibly carrying out their civic duties by saying there are worse people than us. Yeah. Um, that's really not what corporate policy should be about. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, you know, I, I certainly concur Facebook didn't start out to be a destructive voice, and they thought they were doing a lot of great good. 
when we watch people organize uh, in Tahrir Square using social media, calling for more representative government and empowered uh, Iranians and others to be able to communicate with each other and organized protests against uh, human rights abuses. But we have seen that those goods are not unmitigated goods and there are some very serious ills. Because that, it can be gamed so easily. It can be gamed so easily. And uh, and even now, you know, I've been working for some years and trying to attack even before COVID the problem of vaccine misinformation mm-hmm. online. It's still easy to monetize the sale of information that kills people, misinformation that kills people on these platforms. And and there's no way that any of these platforms should enjoy immunity as long as that's the case. Right. So back in March, Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey of Twitter, and Sundar Pichai of Google all testified in front of Congress and were pressed on whether they thought their companies were partly responsible for the attack. Let me play you Zuckerberg's response. Chairman, my, my point is that I think that the responsibility here lies with the people who took the actions to break the law and take and do the insurrection. And secondarily, also, uh, the, the people who spread uh, that content, uh, in, including the president, but, but others as well. What do you think of that response? I think the answer to that question should start out with, um, here's our role in this. Uh, and this is what we are seeing and have seen, and this is what we need to do uh, better. And we recognize tragically, our own contribution to that nightmare Mm -hmm. on January 6th. Look, people were organizing on social media, like-minded people who uh, are willing to literally attack the seat of government, could find themselves, could organize, could finance. um, And there's no ignoring that responsibility. Are you going to subpoena these tech executives to talk about this? Obviously, they're not the main cause, although you can sort of spread blame all around. How much focus will be on them? Well, this is one of the challenges we have, which is we have a very broad remit. We want to write the definitive report. We use the 9-11 Commission report as our model. Uh, And clearly, uh, social media played a very integral role in helping to organize this attack and to propagate a big lie, which is tearing at the fabric of our democracy. Uh, So we are definitely pursuing this. Um, I'm not uh, able to tell you who would be subpoenaed or whether subpoenas would be necessary We've already made document requests of the social media companies. Uh, Some are complying more than others. Who's not complying? Well, I I don't want to uh, disclose that at this point. But What does not complying mean? Just slow or? Well, some are not complying at all. Um, Mm -hmm. Others are providing some information, but uh, we feel there's a lot more out there. They often drag their feet on government requests in general. They they have a long history of that. Well, I think what this whistleblower has revealed is how much important information there is to society uh, to see inside these big companies. Um, and I think that the the push to require transparency is an incredibly important one. I, I what think, could they have done, would you think, kick Trump off sooner? Zuckerberg, you, you know, he mentioned Trump. Trump bears responsibility. But they bear responsibility for keeping him on despite rule-breaking. And at the same time, he's the president of the United States. So it's a real pickle they put themselves in. Well, it is. And I don't think we can minimize the complexity of some of these uh, questions. Mm -hmm. When the most destructive propagandist is also the president of the United States, what do you do about that? And when that president of the United States uh, is also willing to use all the levers of state power to punish those who stand up to him, uh, what do you do about that? And 
Um, Donald Trump couldn't do this on his own. He had a lot of enablers. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the enablers that I, frankly, hold most responsible are uh, the men and women I serve with in the Congress um, who surrendered everything they cared about, everything they professed to believe in to uphold this deeply unethical man who was tearing at the fabric of our democracy. So before members of Congress point fingers, we need to do our own introspection. Uh, Had leaders in the GOP stood up to Trump uh, instead of so readily capitulated, we would have avoided this nightmare. And they're still doing it. They're still doing it. They're still doing it. Um, Seeing Mike Pence do it was quite something. The ultimate act of obsequiousness uh, on the one hand, and betrayal of our democracy on the other. Um, I was on the floor on January 6th. Uh, I had suggested the speaker months before the election that we form a rump group of members to prepare for whatever might happen in the election and aftermath. Of course, we looked at about a thousand different scenarios and never came up with the one that happened. We did not didn't think, think of attack. attack. We did not think of attack. We did think of violence. Uh, we certainly were concerned about violence around the country. And yet what happened was far worse, I think, than anyone's expectation. But I remember uh, Republican colleagues coming up to me because uh, I was hanging back to let uh, others who were more worried uh, leave the floor. And um, and plus we had all these Republican members not willing to wear masks. Mm-hmm. They didn't particularly want to be jammed in with a bunch of people not wearing masks. Mm-hmm. And I had Republican members come up to me on the floor and say, you can't let them see you. Um, I know these people. I can talk to these people. You're in a whole different situation. You can't let them see you. And my first reaction was to be touched by their evident concern of my Mm well-being. But my next impulse was, you know, if you hadn't been making up all this stuff about me, um, if you all hadn't been pushing this big lie, I wouldn't need to worry about my security. None of us would. Um, Which is what Liz Cheney said. Get your hands off of me. I don't need your help. Exactly. Exactly. Um, But— what I discovered in, in these last four years um, is something that uh, the historian Robert Caro once said in an interview. Power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. And power revealed a lot of the people that I serve with to not believe anything that they said they believe. Uh, one of the most frequent questions I get from people is, do the Republicans really believe what they say uh, when they're talking to you in private? Most of my Republican colleagues do not believe the big lie. They know it's a big lie, mm-hmm. and yet they push it uh, because they're afraid of Trump, because they're afraid of a primary, because they want to advance to the Senate, or maybe they want a cabinet appointment in another Trump administration. And it turns out nothing is quite as important as that. Not their oath, not their ideology, not what the party used to stand for. And that was a terrible realization for me. So let's talk about the January 6th committee because one of the things that happened is you aren't getting a bipartisan committee. You do have two, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Can you talk about whether you can have a meaningful conclusion without GOP involvement? And obviously you don't have it, so that's what it is. And what they mean because well, they're I, taking heat. They're taking heat from Kevin McCarthy. Uh, obviously Liz Cheney's under huge pressure. So is Representative uh, Kinzinger. Uh, Representative Gonzalez is not running. Like it, well, uh, first of all, I, I would disagree that we don't have GOP involvement in the committee. Um, probably the two most important members of the GOP are, in fact, on the committee um, because they're two who have the courage of their convictions. They're two who I would like to think represent the future of that party when that party returns to being a party of ideas and ideology again. So their participation is enormously important. Our report will be judged, I think, by those uh, who have an open mind by the quality of its analysis, by the quality of the evidence we gather. That's the standard we have to shoot for. And 
Uh, I think the Speaker made the absolute right judgment in wanting a functional committee uh, with members devoted to getting to the truth rather than having the appearance of a broader bipartisan membership where half the people on the committee were determined to propagate the big lie. So right now you're in the middle of that in terms of subpoenas. You sent out three rounds to top Trump advisors and organizers of the rally that preceded the attack. Can you give us a quick overview of how um, you pick who you want to hear from? Well, what we've done is essentially scope out the investigation. And then we've mapped out, okay, who are the key witnesses in each of these subject matter areas? Uh, And then what's the right uh, priority order to bring people in? Um, And there can be a lot of factors that go into those considerations, uh, including the the centrality of their testimony, Mm -hmm. um, but also who we think we're going to have a fight with. And we need to bring them in early because if they're going to fight, we need to use whatever compulsion we can, whatever tools that we have, and we need to get started now. Right, except they are fighting. Issuing subpoenas is one thing, but getting people to comply is another. This is a group of people who actively have realized you can break the laws and not get not pay the price. Um, well, they, they could for four years because mm-hmm. for those four years, we had an attorney general who viewed his job, uh, whether it was Bill Barr or Jeff Sessions, to varying degrees, particularly Bill Barr, as defending the president's personal interests, not the Constitution, and not his own department. Um, that's not true anymore. And so witnesses who fail to show up now uh, will need to contemplate they may very well be prosecuted. Um, so will they? Well, we will find out. We will find out. Um, If witnesses fail to show up, then the committee can make criminal referrals to the Department of Justice. We can hold them in criminal contempt and seek prosecution by the Justice Department. Uh, And it will be the decision of the Justice Department. Now, I have to hope and pray that um, we will not have another four years where people can flout the rule of law and Mm -hmm. get away with it. But they're flouting right now. They're supposed to submit depositions. Let's do a lightning round about where they stand and what you've heard back. Mark Meadows, Trump's former chief of staff. Um, I'm not free to to disclose that until the committee does. Um, But what is in the public record is the president is telling these people. Not to. Not to. Cash Patel, former Pentagon chief of staff. Uh, Patel was a a former Nunes staffer um, who was a demonstration of the uh, principle in the Trump administration that the more uh, willing you were to do anything the president wanted, no matter how Mm -hmm. uh, unscrupulous, the higher and faster you could rise. And he rose um, Mm Phoenix-like through the Trump administration, one position after another, uh, even being contemplated to take over the CIA. um, So basically Remora-fish action. Well, I kind of view it more like an evil zealot. Oh, okay. Um, But uh, it was, you know, part of the broader story the last four years, which is anyone of any stature Mm -hmm. um, or integrity like Mattis would be gone and be replaced with someone of lesser stature. Who's willing to do this? Well, they seem to be willing. Dan Scavino, he's the deputy chief. Um, Steve, he just basically did the the, ta- the tweets. I think that's what his job was. He was the tweet guy. He was uh, one of the social media people, yes. Yes, thank you. It's a nice tweet guy. <laughs> uh, Steve Bannon. Well, I can tell you what Steve Bannon did uh, during the Russia investigation, and that is we brought him into the skiff. At the time, uh, the investigation was being chaired by the Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, He initially refused to answer questions about his conversations with the president. And even the Republicans were a a little bit taken aback by the breadth of his obstructionism. Wow, Steve Bannon's brazen. What a surprise. Uh, (laughs) Well, at that point, he was on the outs with the president. He was a a man without a country. 
And so I remember Trey Gowdy acting very indignant to that. This is Representative Trey Gowdy, who was Yes. Bennett wouldn't answer questions. Uh, so we actually subpoenaed him. He came back two weeks later. This time, he was even more brazen. Hmm. He came with 25 questions written out for us. He said these were the questions that he would deign to allow us to ask him, and they were already answered for us, and the answer was no to each one of them. We asked him, where did this list come from? Did you write it up? His answer was the White House. Um, and all the indignation that uh, we saw from Trey Gowdy two weeks earlier uh, vanished in a puff of smoke. Uh, they wouldn't hold him in contempt. They wouldn't move forward because they understood that if they tried to force Bannon, this man without a country, to mm -hmm. testify, it would set a precedent. Well, what do you do when Hope Hicks doesn't answer questions or Corey Lewandowski doesn't answer questions? How do you respond to the obvious hypocrisy? Why you're willing to insist with mm -hmm. Steve Bannon but not with the rest of them? And Sure enough, that's exactly what happened when we brought these other witnesses um, in. So when you're saying you're hoping and praying the Justice Department will reinforce these subpoenas, is it realistic that they aren't going to just rope-a-dope you all? Well, it is realistic. Mm -hmm. um, in some of the most important testimony thus far from former Department of Justice officials who mm -hmm. testified that essentially Trump was trying to use the Justice Department to mm -hmm. overturn the election. Um, the current administration, which is the holder of the privilege— said, we are not going to assert privilege. Um, and so these witnesses came forward, testified, um, and that's very important evidence. And the fact that we have an administration now which um, is willing to publicly assert, we're not going to allow uh, these witnesses um, who have relevant testimony about a violent attack on our capital to hide behind privilege is a seminal difference from what we saw. So, but then what about the ones, the ones that Donald Trump is saying say nothing? Yeah. Omerta, whatever the heck he's saying. Well, we need the uh, the administration again uh, to make it clear. Uh, they're not going to let these witnesses hide behind privilege. Uh, and at the end of the day, if the witnesses uh, continue to stonewall, we need the Justice Department to uh, reinforce through prosecution that um, no, the rule of law is back. Okay. You've had up to 18 subpoenas now. The latest round went to three main organizers of the protests around the country, including Stop the Seal, LLC. Is there a strategy in uh, zooming in on the organizers? It makes a lot of sense to look at who organized these rallies. What was their understanding? What was their expectation about the propensity for violence? How were they coordinated? What kind of communication was there between the rally organizers and the White House? How was this paid for? What was the, the purpose of the march on the Capitol? Mm -hmm. How did people know to come armed uh, with tactical gear, with communications equipment? We want to know it all because we want to be able to tell the country about all of it. And right. so, yes, it, it makes sense uh, to start with them, but, but certainly not end with them. So are you going to subpoena Mike Pence? Um, I can't speak for the committee. Uh, we'll make that uh, decision uh, jointly, and it'll be announced by our chairman um, in terms of any high-profile uh, witness. But one thing that we are very uniform about is that we will go to whoever has the information that we need. And Sounds like you'd like to. No one is off the table. No one's, uh, including no one Donald Trump table. himself? Um, no one is off the table. I'd love you to then talk about the first impeachment trial. It didn't seem to hurt him at all. Um, you warned about this. Neither did his second impeachment trial, which charged him with inciting insurrection. In your book, you write that Trump's acquittal only emboldened him. Quote, he had an iron grip on the base of the Republican Party. He could say whatever he wanted, and they would believe him, or at least profess they did. Um, what 
What's the end goal this time? What is this committee going to do that the impeachments didn't? Well, first of all, I think the impeachments did accomplish something very important, which is they exposed the president uh, for what he is, uh, for the danger that he represented. Now, that work is obviously not over. As president was using the biggest megaphone in the world to broadcast the biggest lies, Mm -hmm. um, he doesn't have the biggest megaphone anymore, but he still has a very big one. And uh, that megaphone is, is of course, amplified by um, this right-wing media ecosystem, uh, and that's a lot to overcome. There is no equivalent on the left of Fox and OAN. and That group doesn't get as excited. You can't keep them interested that long. Well, I do, would— Do you want to either? I, I, I think that uh, we are not willing, and we shouldn't, mm-hmm. um, to engage in the kind of destructive falsehood that we see on Newsmax and OAN and Fox. Mm-hmm. Um, And that doesn't mean we don't fight hard. We have to fight hard and we have to fight smart. Um, And right now, as long as the Republican Party is a cult uh, around the former president, they just need to be beaten. Uh, The most corrosive thing that Donald Trump did over four years was this relentless attack on the truth. Um, And these these two conversations we're having about social media and, Mm -hmm. and about January 6th are related in many ways. But to me, one of the most important is – We've had this revolution in how we get information, and it's made it very difficult to talk to each other. It's made it very difficult to understand each other. Uh, One of my colleagues, Mike Quigley, put it better than anybody I know when he said, uh, it used to be people would say, "Um, I'll believe it when I see it. Now it's more, I'll see it when I believe it. Um, You can show people video of white nationalists attacking the Capitol, beating police officers, you can show it to them. They won't believe it. Uh, they, actually, they won't see it. They won't okay. even see it until they're ready to believe it. And they're not ready to believe it because Donald Trump tells them, you can't believe anything you see. You can't believe anything you read. You can only mm-hmm. believe me. And then what do we do? Uh, after, the, after we finish our analysis, well, yeah. I, I have to hope uh, that what we show the American people uh, through our hearings, through our report, uh, helps change minds, uh, helps um, provide a record for history of the danger this man uh, represented and the, the fragility of our democracy. That means you need Trump there to talk about it at the hearing. He's kind of the main character. Ah, oh, I see. Um, it's kind well, of like I, I'm, not doing I, Moby Dick without the whale. <laughs> like, you need the whale, right? You know, I— uh, um, when my son was younger, probably too young to watch uh, Gregory Peck and Moby Dick, mm-hmm. uh, nonetheless, is one of my favorite films, mm-hmm. sat down, we watched it together, and I, I said, so what do you think? Because uh, he was a bit speechless afterwards. And he said, that was awful. That sucked. They didn't even kill the whale. They didn't kill the whale. That was the whole point. Yeah, um, they didn't well, kill the whale. Anyway, um, whale that, kind of that, that was my them. effort at deflecting your question. Yeah, uh, but, I see uh, that, but I, I'm on to you. I, I'm just not in a position to be making determinations right, w- about Would that. Representative, you, you yourself, Adam, want him? Do you think he's critical to speak to? Look, I, I, I'm going to come back to um, what I mentioned before, which is— Anyone who has relevant information, um, I think we should hear from. Yeah, you need to hear from the whale, just so you know. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. 
You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with former Trump advisor Jason Miller, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Adam Schiff after the break. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with an effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that (laughs) should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. So you talked about McCarthy's loyalty to Trump. He's a central figure in your book, and you describe his flirting with turning against Trump after the insurrection. It didn't happen. Um, well, his, his flirtation with conscience yeah. lasted about 30 seconds. Yeah, it did. To me— But it was the, grand. The more, the more important player mm-hmm. was Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. Because you could almost see him struggle. Uh, you could see, I think, from him how much he despises Donald despises. Trump. Despises probably more than you, I would guess. Um, well, we'd be in a tight competition, okay. but he couldn't hide the disdain, mm-hmm. in my view. And he is smart enough to understand what a, a horrible destructive force he's been on the Republican Party, and how much mm-hmm. uh, Trump has battered an institution that he has served in for decades. Um, and when you listen to his comments. After the second impeachment uh, about Trump being morally and practically responsible for the insurrection and the vehemence of those comments, uh, you could tell that there was a struggle going on. He was talking history. That's what he was doing. Uh, Well, yes. And he wanted it both ways. Um, I mean, after all, his espoused reason to vote for quitting someone that he acknowledged incited an attack on our own capital was that the trial didn't start while he was in office. And the trial didn't start while he was in office because he wouldn't let it start. But but nonetheless, 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 you could at least see some wrestling with the idea of throwing Trump overboard. And I think McConnell ultimately concluded that instead, if he tried, he would be thrown overboard. Now, that may be very true, but this is something that I have grappled with. Um, yeah, you write a lot about in this book, The Stranglehold. That has continued because, you know, even Mitch McConnell holds his nose. You spend a lot of time in the book ruminating on Trump's appeal, not just to the GOP, but also to voters. What do you think is at the root of that? He's not the president. He's been deplatformed, yet it continues. I think the the appeal, and you see it of other despots around the world or aspiring despots around the world, is 
he doesn't make much of an effort to say that he's not corrupt. Mm -hmm. Instead, he tries to say everyone else is corrupt. Uh, And the intimation is we're all corrupt, but I'm corrupt and I'm your corrupt guy. Um, I hear you. Those others, they look down on you. And if you can persuade someone, however falsely, that the other side looks down on you, you will never win over their support. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think Donald Trump gave a daily dose of poison into the body politic. But what's the appeal? There's an appeal there, too. When he was, before he was running, I was with a group of White House reporters or political reporters at a party, and they were laughing. And I said, don't laugh. He's very appealing. Like, I talk about this like I was the only person who ever watched The Apprentice. I'm like, he's extraordinarily appealing. He's funny. And he makes people feel like he's listening to them. Like, so if they're disgruntled people, boy, are they going to love it. Well, I think I think part of what resonated for people is in the last uh, 30 to 40 years, um, the middle class has become increasingly risk uh, at risk of falling apart. And people are most willing to rebel, to, to bring about a revolution, not when they um, are most impoverished, but when they feel they are most exposed to losing what they have. And he saw around the country millions and millions of people who had had a Bush as president and their life didn't change and they had a Clinton as president and their life hadn't changed. Uh, and he said, I'm going to break everything. And they were ready for somebody to break everything. Um, and they didn't necessarily believe he was going to improve their lives, but at least he was sticking it to those that they thought were responsible for their circumstances. Um, so I, I think that was part of the appeal and an enormous part of what my party needs to do. We need to show that the democracy can work uh, and can deliver for everyone. We could create an economy that works for everyone, which is why the the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill uh, are not uh, somehow separate and distinct from promotion of democracy. Do you think that this logjam will hurt Democrats in the midterms, you know, and risk control of both the House and the Senate? Well, that's certainly the, the GOP strategy, which is, as one of them said in a private meeting, um, we want chaos and gridlock for the next 18 months. That's their strategy. Um, that's McCarthy and Not McConnell's bad. strategy. But I'm confident we're going to get it done. Uh, we will get the reconciliation bill passed, the Build Back Better bill, and we'll also get an infrastructure bill passed. And the combination of those two things and the rescue plan we already passed, that will have a demonstrable impact in people's lives that I think will be the so most So you think this long will, will pass this? How do you get a, a, a Senator Manchin and Cinema in line? Manchin wants to slash the proposed spending on the domestic package by more than half. No one seems to know what Cinema wants. Um, look, I, I'm for the, the biggest and boldest uh, package, so mm-hmm. that's where I am. Um, but I also know, having been at this now for uh, 20 years, you don't get everything you want. Uh, I'm not expecting to get everything I want. But if at the end of the day we uh, have a rescue plan that's already been passed, uh, we pass a major infrastructure bill and we pass a major um, human infrastructure bill mm-hmm. that helps with child care and uh, helps with higher education and the green economy, if we can do all that, um, that's a Lots superb accomplishment. All right. So are you worried about the midterms if they get the House and the Senate? I could talk about chaos. Well, I think I think we have a slight edge at holding the House. Um, and do I worry about uh, what would happen if the Republicans— Because your friend Kevin gets back in charge. Well, this is the thing. This is why I, I wanted to let people know exactly who he is in the book, mm-hmm. because 
that man can never go near the speaker's office. Um, someone who has no commitment to the truth, someone who, if they can tell right from wrong, doesn't act on that uh, distinction, cannot be given a position of that kind of responsibility. Just cannot. He will do – this is a guy, of course, sorting starbursts for the president. He mm-hmm. will do whatever the president wants, uh, no matter how unethical, no matter how destructive our democracy, as long as he can climb the ladder. Um, and someone like that cannot be allowed to lead. So, so you're not drinking buddies? Um, no. That used to happen, didn't it? It did. But look, there's there's bipartisan work that gets done. Um, well, everybody hates Facebook this week. So. <laughs> well, you know, in the Intel Committee, for example. Yeah. We passed the Intel Authorization Act mm-hmm. uh, on a unanimous bipartisan basis. Um, if I can work with Mr. Nunes, given all that we've been through, then, yeah. then any two people in Congress should be able to get things done. Who, who among the Republicans, besides the ones on your committee, is there anyone that will step up? Well, I think Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger certainly yeah. have. Every um, now and then Chris Christie says something, I think. Well, I would not— um, uh, I, I find it very difficult to applaud people who enable uh, someone's um, bankrupt conduct year after year and occasionally depart from that. Are there any Republicans you feel would step up? You know, there have always been Republican voices um, speaking out against Trump. The problem is very few of them are in elective office. And even people leaving elective office are still too worried about what they're going to do next uh, to speak truth to power. Right. And let me what is your relationship with Liz Cheney now? Well, you're on this committee together. Obviously, you couldn't be more different in terms of point of view on lots of policy. Yeah. Well, look, I have enormous respect for Liz Cheney uh, and Adam Kinzinger and other Republicans who are willing to speak the truth uh, and who live their convictions, even if we disagree vehemently on policy. and, I, you know, I'm careful about what I say because I don't want to make their life more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning you as a friend is not the friend they need. Well, uh, meaning they um, have enough on their hands uh, without uh, giving additional fodder to the voices of, of hate uh, on, on Fox. But we need people of good conscience to, to be willing to speak the truth uh, at this critical moment in our history. And why, is, why are they doing it, do you think? Well, like I was saying, power reveals people for who they are, and it has revealed, um, I think, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger of being a people of courage and conviction, um, and tragically revealed too few of their colleagues to be the same. Are you going to get them to get on board with infrastructure? <laughs> I have not talked infrastructure. With <laughs> okay, them, good. So I don't okay. know about that. Probably not. You're spending too much money. You're a Democrat. You socialist. Anyway, no, I'm teasing. That's what they, they're going to go back to that. Which is much it's a more comfortable place for you to debate, presumably, on actual policy issues. Happy to debate um, any of my colleagues, including uh, Liz and Adam, about infrastructure. Okay. Uh, let's finally talk about your political future. You're in the 11th term in the House. You're one of those people. Your seat is considered very safe. Um, are you sticking around Congress or onto another seat soon? You were rumored to be up for California AG, which didn't happen. Uh, I'm sticking around. Um, if my constituents will have me, I'm sticking around. And, and why? Because uh, so many congressmen are leaving. Well, because one of the few ways in which I felt fortunate during the last four years is I was in a position where I could do something about what was going on. And um, I think uh, I'm still in a position to do something um, at this really fragile moment. Uh, I, I think uh, 
we'll look back on this time as a as a a time when whatever we did helped either helped speed our recovery or retarded it and forced the country to go through more uh, turmoil. Um, and so I, I still feel I have a very important place in the Congress and uh, and determined to uh, do my part in trying to keep our institutions together. Okay, my last question. Do you think Trump will run in 2024? Absolutely. 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 Yeah. And you know why? It would be intolerable to him to see anyone else get the attention. Yeah. I mean, the idea of Donald Trump sitting that at home they watching, all want it so badly. watching Mike Pence become yeah. a nominee or Nikki Haley or Chris Christie or any of these people, he, he would go out of his mind. Um, and so I think he, he feels a compulsion. It's a, it's a pathology. I, I also think that um, he suspects that it's a great way to make money uh, and it may keep him one step ahead of the jailer as long as he is a president or a presidential candidate, um, maybe he can keep ahead of the jailer. Do you think he'd win? No. No. Um, I don't think the country's going to want to go back um, to that nightmare. And I think uh, with every passing day, uh, when we gain more and more perspective on what we've been through, I think people re will recoil um, at, uh, more and more every day at the idea of ever going back to that. They're not going to want to go back to the, the days of a president uh, calling uh, everything a hoax and attacking the media as the enemy of the people. Do you think he'll be reinstated on social media? Because that's where he did a lot of it, including attacking you, like a lot. Um, I don't know. Um, as long as he is pushing out big lies and attacking uh, people and dividing people along racial lines. Um, you think he shouldn't be re-platformed, I, I guess. I don't think there's uh, any reason he should be allowed back. I don't see how... His behavior is consistent with any technology company's code of ethics, um, corporate policies, policies for their users. I, look, I, I don't, I don't pretend to think that this is an easy question, mm -hmm. um, but I also think that you cannot maintain a policy against hate uh, if you allow the biggest hater to have the biggest platform in your media. Uh, you can't have a policy against undermining our election integrity if you allow someone who does more to undermine that than anyone else. You just can't. Uh, and so uh, at the end of the day, I don't want to see those voices of violent hatred and lies um, occupying the places in social media. Okay. On that note, Representative Adam Schiff, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blake Nishik, Matt Kwong, Daphne Chen, and Caitlin O'Keefe. Edited by Naima Raza. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair, Michelle Harris, and Kristen Lin. Special thanks to Shannon Busta and Mahima Chablani. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway served to you like a subpoena you can't outrun, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. Any 
NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you. Guided by plant professionals, dig into botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.